This is That's So Second Millennium, where we explore issues at the interface between science, philosophy, and Catholic theology. I'm your host, Paul Giesting, and your co-host is Bill Schmidt. Today, Bill and I interview the scholar Paul Sungo Chung, the author of God at the Crossroads of Worldviews. Paul is a theologian, and I would also say philosopher and historian of philosophy. So the context of his book is a search for a common ground from which to discuss the existence of God in today's intellectually, and of course, really in humanities, fractured um, intellectual landscape where we all inhabit different worldviews and we have a very difficult time crossing those boundaries, coming to crossroads where we can discuss things with each other in a way that makes sense, that we would call rational, that we would understand as rational. So that is what we spend most of the uh, podcast discussing. Paul also has his own podcast series, which is almost more like an audio class where he is walking through he has a he has a very a clear idea of where he wants to go, and so he's walking through what would be a follow up to the book, where he walks through an encounter at the crossroads between you know himself as a theist and someone in more of a modern atheistic worldview, where in that worldview God is just this additional thing that is mysterious and annoying. Why we would want to posit this extra unnecessary being that is God and trying to explain to such a person the position that God uh, occupies in a theistic worldview, as well as pointing the things within that atheistic worldview. This is the real trick. Um, Difficult, but by no means impossible um, to point to things in that atheistic worldview that correspond to what the theist believes God to be, especially a theist who is, of course, from a mature theological tradition, especially like that, Uh, exemplified by Aquinas, where God is the ground of rationality in some sense. That doesn't quite do justice to the way he uses the term in the book. So both the book, God of the Crossroads of Worldviews, and the podcast, What Do You Mean God Speaks? We'd strongly recommend um, that you look into. And so with that, I will leave you with our interview with Paul Sunko Chung. Thank you so much. All right. Well, welcome back to this episode of That's So Second Millennium, where we're very uh, pleased to have Paul Sungo Chung. Sorry, butchered that a little bit, but uh, the author of God at the Crossroads of Worldviews on the podcast today. He is a philosopher. Um, he has taught at the uh, University of Toronto. He also is the protagonist, author, uh, primary voice, only voice, I believe, of the uh, podcast. <laughs> the voice of the, the podcast, What Do You Mean God Speaks? Um, so the, the book is uh, going to be a major topic today. Um, the subjects he raises in the podcast will be a major topic today. And uh, they concern the arguments that we have in the modern world and their, their roundaboutness and you know arguing past each other. Incommensurability, I believe, is a term that you use repeatedly in the book. Um, and trying to find a way to, to do something more constructive uh, with a philosophic debate over whether God exists in the context of our modern society, our modern philosophical 
commitments um, and the existence of modern science and what relevance it has toward the debate as such. So, and of course, we're also very happy to have Bill. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, where do you want to get started? How, what, what, what's the genesis of this project? Or uh, what, what in your background, uh, Dr. Chung, led you to, uh, to go in this direction? And I, I believe you just said that this was, um, the book is fundamentally inspired by your, uh, your work for your uh, doctoral dissertation. Um, so, uh, so when I enter my PhD, so, uh, I don't, I don't know how it is for a lot of other people who enter their PhD, but I have noticed in the area of theology, which is, uh, actually what my uh, PhD is, uh, uh, I noticed that a lot of people have difficulty when they're trying to figure out what they want to write for their dissertation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my case, I knew pretty much from the start, uh, which was, uh, I want to talk about, uh, why we have such trouble when we are trying to debate or even just generally converse about God and uh, why we seem to just argue past each other and what's behind that, what's, what's the uh, rational, philosophical, or intellectual sort of um, underlying assumptions and, and background and context, which makes us talk past each other. And is there something that enables us to, enable us to go beyond that? So I pretty much directed my entire PhD, you know, studies, um, s- checking out and investigating different aspects uh, to this question, uh, which then led to the dissertation and which then after uh, like a year or so of revision uh, became this book. So uh, I guess the motivation behind it uh, is because when I was in my university years, uh, I, was, uh, I was an agnostic. You could say, uh, but when you when I say agnostic, it it could also mean soft atheist. If you know the terminology, you know, like there's no reason to believe in God. It's not like I have uh, reasons to not believe in God, but I don't have reasons to believe in God. So I I am almost functionally atheist. But yeah. I also grew up in a, a very uh, committed Christian home with parents I greatly respect uh, in many 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 different ways. Right. Um, mm-hmm including intellectually, because it's, because they're very intellectually honest and um, and careful and everything. So I'm like, okay, there has to be something about Christianity that's worth respecting, but I'm also a skeptic and agnostic. Mm-hmm. And I went through the years of like working out a lot of things. And, and I have to say, uh, there there is a large dimension of like personal experiential um, way that you sort of encounter God. That's That's one dimension, but there is also the intellectual sort of uh, reasoning dimension that uh, that underlie or set up the foundation of how how we think about God. So, based on this experience, what I was trying to um, to figure out was what made someone sort of be both agnostic, skeptic, and also willing to sort of think about God, and then sort of walk uh, walk the journey to believing God. So, I, so in a way, it was also a retracing of my own journey, as well as uh, a very, very significant uh, sort of an intellectual question that I had, because you can't get a larger question than like the question of God or ultimate reality, right? So, so how do you how do you think about that? And during my university years, I uh, because of it, I studied um, not only philosophy but um, 
other religious traditions, obviously in a very introductory manner because undergraduate, right? So Hinduism, Taoism, China, uh, East, East Asian philosophies, uh, Buddhism, um, a bit of Islam, um, and it all went into that. So, mm -hmm. so I guess uh, what I came up with was that uh, we have to, whenever we speak in, in, in questions like this, we have to think in terms of like entire worldviews how yeah. a particular belief is sort of intertwined with a larger way of uh, not only like a set of beliefs, but a larger way of looking at things and even thinking about everything. And if that's the case, the huge question then becomes, if people have these larger way of thinking that is not easy to sort of compare and contrast and figure out which one's wrong, then how do you go from one such like comprehensive position to another comprehensive position and actually communicate in ways that seem, well, at the very least, uh, comprehensible and possibly, you know, plausible. So yeah. when I thought about all of these things and put it into writing, uh, it became that book. Mm -hmm. And hence the title, God at the Crossroads of Worldviews. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, a title that made more, more and more sense as the book went on. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, gosh, where to start from there? Because that, that concept of worldview is a, <clears throat> it's a, yeah, I mean, that you have a chapter, um, where you start, um, chapter three, uh, the title is something close to the road, rationality and worldviews. Mm. And so immediately the outset of that, you know, from my own actually education, I, I was privileged that somehow I stumbled into a geology program that actually had a capstone class where we talked about the philosophy of science, which is not a very common experience. Um, and so, of course, we read Popper, we read Kuhn. And so at the, at the very outset, I write, how would you distinguish worldviews from Kuhnian paradigms? And then you talk about Kuhn repeatedly yes. in the rest of the, of the book. So I was like, ah, okay. So I'm not entirely crazy trying to link these two concepts. Could you Maybe you could flesh out for people who aren't necessarily so familiar with both of these concepts, how, what a scientific paradigm is, what a worldview would be, how you would see those as relating. Well, you mentioned uh, Popper, right? Um, so one of, one other thing would be like how one of the, mm -hmm. um, where to start if I'm speaking to a very general audience, um, there's a Simpsons episode, right? Um, you know, Simpsons. Uh, <laughs> there, so, there is your universal touch point, the Simpsons, yes. Right, so, um, and I think there's a, there's like this board meeting for a, a TV show and and this one like executive woman uh, says, it's, it's going to be a new paradigm. And um, the other person said, hey, this, like isn't the word paradigm like used by people who's, I forgot the exact line, but it's like, who just wants to like pretend they're intelligent and he gets fired, right? Uh, so you have to wonder like, oh, where's the word paradigm comes from, right? Uh, and, uh -huh. and the paradigm is uh, popularized really by Kuhn's work. And yeah. uh, what Kuhn's work was doing was that uh, we think science is like simply like linear and cumulative. So you have a whole bunch of facts and you just add more and more facts from previous facts and that's it. And um, that's a very simplified way of putting it, by the way, for those of you who's actually knows a bit more but um but still uh still a fair point would be uh kuhn says that's not really how it works because he was a historian of science and that's a big point he says uh, how science actually has operates is that there is something called the paradigm which is you can think of it as a larger framework of how you do things and and um how like um, larger ideas of how the world 
uh, is and how like science sort of operates in it. I mean, in a very general way uh, to put it. And what that means is that uh, when you get facts, uh, you are also a lot of those facts and how you gain those facts and how you sort of figure out what those facts are in the first place and, and make those observations are already framed by existing larger theoretical setting. So like what instruments like, should, you, should you use? What's the sort of thing that your science um, can investigate? What sort of things are, like it doesn't and shouldn't? Uh, what sort of mm-hmm. questions can you ask? And what sort of questions are like totally in, invalid and, and perhaps even unintelligible? Like it's already all set. Um, and, mm-hmm. and what then happens is that when you have the paradigm set, then you, you know what to do in science, like in that particular field of science. Yeah. Um, and, you know how to do uh, ordinary science at that point. Right. And there's a, already a set sort of methodology that you follow and, and a sort of a very, very, very general way that like you expect your science to turn out. And most of the time it works well. But um, sometimes there's what he calls anomalies. It, anomalies. It doesn't really work. Um, and and you, you would think that if, it's, if science is like purely rational in a very simplistic and naive sense, then you th- you think ah it doesn't work so let's let's get rid of it it's like it doesn't work that way because paradigm is like you work with it and you get rid of it you don't know what to do because that's right. how you think right so right. you 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 go by that paradigm and if something goes against it like if stuff happens and like that's not supposed to happen um, mm-hmm. you sort of set it aside and you assume that either you made an error or there was some stuff that like that the paradigm should e- explain eventually and stuff like that but mm-hmm. eventually when anomalies like accumulate uh, until you can't ignore it anymore what then usually happens is uh, what's called a crisis where you like we are not sure of everything because if you if the paradigm goes then all of the stuff that we did even the stuff that we called facts are um, are in question because the way that you got those facts in the first place you got it by that paradigm right mm-hmm. so then then you had this crisis and Kuhn argues that uh, it's only overcome when there's another paradigm that solves th- that crisis. But the problem is um, the the way that paradigm sort of justifies itself, it's like shows that it's right, is based on the paradigm. So I think mm-hmm. one of the examples that he gives is uh, Copernicus, uh, the Copernican re- um, revolution. And you would think, hey, like obviously it's like obviously the earth circle circle uh, around the sun and not the reverse but back in those days it wasn't that obvious because one um there are a lot of reasons to think that hey if the earth is moving it's going to feel like it's moving but it doesn't feel like it's moving it's pretty stable except you know earthquakes or whatever and sun looks like it's moving and they had a very complex set of you know astronomical model which did predict like everything that moves in the heavens, but it's, it was really, really complicated. And that was the reason why they wanted to switch over to Copernicus, right? So, mm-hmm. so who's right? Because it wasn't simply a matter of prediction. And there were a whole bunch of stuff that um, when the Galileo sort of went for the, um, for the new sort of paradigm, there were reasons to think like, that's just crazy. Obviously, yeah. the earth doesn't move, right? So... Yeah. So Kuhn's, uh, Kuhn's problem that he raised was it's, it's not a simple uh, thing for an entire paradigm to shift. Usually what happens is the people of the old paradigm just die off. 
like they, they, they <laughs> eat up and die. Science, science progresses funeral by funeral. Yes, yes, I've heard yes. That yeah. uh, which is which is re- the reason why um, he was criticized or he was accused of being a relativist, which he wasn't. He he did say, well, there are like some rational reasons why you you would then switch over to the paradigm, but he wasn't clear about it. Yeah. And I yeah. I argued in my book that. Um, it was McIntyre that comes out and really explains why uh, Kuhnian paradigms can shift. Um, mm. So that's like that. That took longer than I wanted for the uh, explanation for paradigms, but uh, it's related to worldviews in the sense that, um, at least at an intellectual level, because worldviews include um, a lot of mm. other dimensions. And if you're curious about that, read uh, Ninian Smart, uh, for example. Mm-hmm. Although he's even, even uh, Nina Smart's more of a classic at this point. But anyway, um, uh, the I way that, problem with that. Yeah, intellectual sort of dimension of uh, worldviews uh, work in ways that are very similar to paradigms. It, it frames how you think about things. Mm-hmm. It sort of tells you what are facts and what you can go for as facts and, and how you can organize that. And he's... And it's not simply a matter of, oh, there's there's like this one fact that goes against your worldview and you can now discard it. It doesn't work that way because once you discard your worldview, you don't have any facts at all because you don't know what you can sort of, because facts are like building blocks. Um, that's, I believe, where the etymology comes from, from factum, which is like make. No. You yeah. have these building blocks and you put it into things so that it forms a worldview. So once you don't have a framework in which to put the blocks, then then you're in trouble. So yeah. in that sense, um, worldviews have a frame like a paradigm. And the reason why I used that for my book was that, okay, so when you have different worldviews that compete against each other or have seemingly contrasting views, then what you have are the problem or the challenges that you're faced with um, is very similar to the one that uh, people with different paradigms have, except it's worse because in Kuhnian paradigms, you have the old paradigm that's being replaced by new. So at least the, the at the very least, people can die off for the old, but mm-hmm. when you have competing worldviews, you have things side by side. So you can't say, well, yours is old and now it's going to die. So it doesn't work that way. Yeah. So then it brings us back to the question of if that's the case, how do you how do you like converse across these competing paradigmatic way of looking at things and thinking about things? Yeah. 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 It's it's a it's a thick problem. Do you have something to say, Bill? No, no. Makes sense. Although the thing that occurred to me was uh, uh, is another complicating factor for these paradigms. The fact that uh, these building blocks uh, of facts, you know, in a in a worldview, uh, tried to combine religious facts Mm. or kind of um, uh, supernatural kinds of understandings and scientific and natural understandings. That that is a a challenging worldview, especially uh, especially in a world where different people are in different places regarding their secularity or the, the degree to which their faith determines their understanding of science. In other words, it just seems like it's a, uh, uh, trying to do this at a global scale uh, is a very challenging uh, meeting of the minds these days. 
it's worse. <laughs> it's actually worse because um, because one other thing that um, you have you have a problem uh, when when you have these competing worldviews or even paradigms. Um, you use different vocabulary. Yes. Or sometimes, yeah. even worse, you use the same word to mean yes. completely different things. They use the yeah. same so, word. Yeah. Uh, the biggest example would be God. Like people think God in a very, very different way. Yeah. Um, even within supposedly same like English speaking, like yeah. Western secularized culture. Yeah. Um, even the words like supernatural and natural, like, what does that even mean? What does natural mean? And yeah. what does supernature means? And for some people, like supernatural means like ghosts and right. and right. like rates and magic. Uh, whereas uh, at for least that matter, so does metaphysical. Right. And for classical Christianity, um, ghosts and, and like magic and all of that, that actually would belong to nature. Like if they exist, that would be part of nature because nature, at least in the way that Christianity has sort of been speaking about it, simply means things that have their own nature. That's like, you know, like human nature. That's what the word means, right? So uh, only thing that's quote-unquote supernatural would be God, really, mm -hmm. because um, God doesn't have like this like set thing that he, like, he's not a, I believe the word that I would be using, for example, in my podcast is like he's not a being among other beings, except with right. special qualities. That's that's not what Christians mean by God. Yeah. Uh, everything that exists would be like nature in the sense that they have their nature and everything. Then you have something that's beyond, you can, something is actually a wrong word for it too, but we have to use something. So, um, yeah. so something beyond it, uh, like this horizon of reality, so to speak. And, and that will be quote unquote supernatural again, we using using words differently, and worse, people don't know that we are using the words differently, and then they try to argue, and then we have a mess. We don't have to go all the way back to Aristotle's categories and talk about words being used univocally or equivocally, and and yeah, we're just not that careful. <laughs> we're just not that careful. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, in the context of the book, and I, I do want to sort of. As 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 great a book as it is, and it is a, it's been a very engrossing read. Um, we want to go on and like because your book is really meant as a foundation, and you're trying to go yeah. beyond that foundation with the work of your podcast and presumably other things you're probably working on in terms of written projects. But you mm -hmm. propose um, so you, in, in chapter three you talk about this this worldview concept, which itself mm -hmm. lives in a worldview. That's the terrifying thing about it, but. Um, taking that in stride, we go on and talk about, you talk about the crossroads of worldviews, and eventually you go on and talk about Aquinas as a prototypical figure who could transcend, who could who could bring worldviews into discussion with each other in conversation, as Bill would yes. like to say often, um, because he, in some sense, actually belonged to both. He, in some sense, got naturalized in both the Augustinian paradigm of early medieval Christianity intellectual tradition and also the uh, Aristotelian paradigm that had swept back in from the Arab East and was, you know, revolutionizing Europe's understanding of natural philosophy and so on. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so Aquinas is, in fact, you could say uh, uh, of like very, very influential Christian thinkers uh, um, tend to be that Augustine was one. He, he basically put the um, Neoplatonic sort of way yeah. of thinking into um, Christianity. Uh, that's that's one of I would say that's one of the reasons why he's 
uh, like a founding uh, intellectual figure in Christianity. Um, Aquinas would be another uh, such figure, which is why he figures uh, largely in my book, because he's bringing Aristotelian uh, sort of philosophical worldview, you could say, uh, and he's integrating that with the Christian worldview. And uh, what's very interesting is that he was successful. Uh, he was supposed to be like this very incommensurable sort of way of understanding and, and thinking about everything. And he was, I believe, uh, I think I quoted this in the book too, um, it was so bad at one point where um, um, the natural philosophy, you could say, like to, in, in our terms today, the scientific and, and like the university, secularized university would be like Aristotelian in thinking and theology would be Augustinian slash uh, sort of Neoplatonic. Then, uh, and people would sort of, um, sort of quip in writing saying uh, theology has like one one statement and um, and um, philosophy has, has some other statement and that's how it is and then uh, Aquinas um, I mean Aquinas wouldn't be the only one there would be people that would have been working the project his mentor um, Albert Magnus I believe um, oh, would have yeah. been yeah he, he, he would have inherited that from from his mentor and he, he brought them together and what's very interesting is that uh philosopher named Bertrand Russell in the 20th century, and he, he was very, um, how should I put it? He was very disdainful, disdainful of Christianity. He was, he was disdainful of a lot of things, yeah. Yes. This disdain yeah. characterizes Bertrand Russell in many, many ways. <laughs> right, right. I, I mean, I don't want to rag on him uh, for his philosophical achievement, right? His uh, logical yeah. atomism was a pretty great achievement for his era of his generation, um, yeah. And uh, but but I've also read his philosophy of West, uh, history of Western philosophy. And it's a terrible book um, right. because because I was an undergrad student. And I wanted to know like how did like what what happened in his, his uh, philosophy? And he was he was witty, but when I was reading through, it, I'm like I don't really like I don't get what these ancient people thought because Bertrand yeah. Russell kept getting in and making his own comments, but. Yes. What was interesting was that he was like very disdainful of Aquinas. He's like, oh yeah, he's not even really a philosopher. But he also says like he actually was successful in integrating Aristotelian yeah. philosophy and, and Christianity. But it's like, but who cares about that? And I'm like, I care because <laughs> combining two different worldviews is something that we today consider to be impossible. And you're yeah. saying, and you, despite your you know disdain that it was actually done before. And I mean, Russell wouldn't have cared about that because he wouldn't have believed that there, there can actually be multiple different ways of thinking about things. Uh, he thought mm -hmm. logical atomism was pretty much the universal thing that everyone should follow anyway. So that's right. where the difference is. Um, so Aquinas does that. And what I found interesting, which then I put it to the book, was that um, his supposed like philosophical arguments for the existence of God, which uh, a lot of philosophers... Um, not the Aquinas scholars, mind you. I mean, contemporary right. philosophers just right. thinking about the question about God. Sort of Richard Dawkins taking that single page out of the Summa and thinking he understands it, for example. Right, but but I don't count him as a philosopher. That well, not that, in Dawkins, of course. Is right, right, but but, but yes, um, but there are philosophers who do something similar. Yes, so philosophers um, who take that page and say this is like the proof that Aquinas gives for the existence of God. But if you actually go and read the Aquinas scholars of Aquinas, they say, actually, no, because um, the arguments of the five ways, for example, the arguments for the existence of God, that one page, um, is would have been regarded as something like he repeating like the 
pretty much the way that Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophers thought about reality as such. So none of the people there would have been like, oh no, I disagree. They would be like, yeah, like obviously we would think about it that way. Obviously, like there are like causes and obviously you can't infinitely regress because what's the point of um, doing any sort of intellectual inquiry? That's, that's how they would have thought. And what's interesting is that after Aquinas makes, like he, he sort of references this way of thinking, he then says, this is what we call God. He doesn't say, therefore God exists. He says, yeah, that thing, like that thing that in your intellectual inquiry sort of arrive at already and then you already are searching or seeking it or thinking about it already, like you, that's granted. You already, you already believe that. We call that God. Or yeah. we name that God, so it's yeah. more of a, more of a identifying process rather than yeah. argumentative process. The arguments actually come later when he says, "Okay, mm-hmm. that that thing, that that reality that you call God, has certain qualities," yeah. and he argues through that for the rest of the uh, the yeah. second one of the yeah. Summa, you could say, yeah. and then it's sort of it's almost like drawing a portrait, right? Like you have this mm-hmm. general portrait that everyone sort of has. Everyone sort of has the same shape because it's a portrait, right? It's like right. face, and then then what Aquinas and what I what I propose that we need to do is that then you draw in from this general shape into a very particular portrait, and that portrait happens to be like God, like in right. the case of Aquinas, the the Christian God, right? And that's the project, rather than trying to argue that hey. That guy, that guy in the portrait exists because no, like it's granted that it's a portrait of something, and mm-hmm. is it the right? Is it an accurate portrait? That's the actual question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the five ways. So you mentioned it as an identification process, and at the same time, it seems to me like it's a consensus building process. That yes, it's, it's it's the point of it's the bridge between the two worldviews. Hey, we agree on this. This yes. is just it's, we just happen to have these different terms for it, perhaps. But hey, we're actually we're we're on the same page here, and we can yeah. start from here. Which is what I call a crossroad. You are yeah. essentially identifying where the crossroad is. So worldviews would have been because another way that I describe worldviews is, is it's like a journey, right? It's you. We are always moving and changing our views, and and we are journeying through things. So you have seen different sort of landscapes, so to speak, uh, metaphorically. And uh, you have been following along a different road. If you understand both worldviews, then you can bring it to a crossroad where mm-hmm. people are looking at, at least at that crossroads of worldviews, people are looking at the same scenery, sort of, but they call it different things. So you come by a crossroad and say, here's a crossroad, here's the horizon. What do you call that? And it's like, oh, it's a sky. Well, we call that God, that kind of mm-hmm. thing, right? Mm-hmm. So what Aquinas then does is say, well, we, I, I, Here's the Augustinian sort of road. Here's the Aristotelian sort of road. And I know where it can cross. And I know at which point we can sort of look at things and and I'm, I will be able to point that and say, that's what we mean by God. Hmm. And then we can start the rest of the journey because that's an important part. You don't, like, this doesn't prove that God exists. It's more like, here's what we mean by God, and now we need to take the journey. We need to think back to the, the journey that we had before and, like, rethink the whole thing uh, so that we understand what was going on. And then we need to sort of map our journey to the future so that we we find out that the portrait that we are drawing, so to speak, or the map in this case, um, actually is the right map or is, is the mm-hmm. correct map, right? But it we describes actually, a real country. 
Yes. Yeah. 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 There, there was a point related to this. I mean, so so with, with Aquinas as a crossroads figure, um, so you, you spend a lot of the book, chapters two through four and also chapter seven, discussing the sort of critical catastrophic failure of the sort of enlightenment epistemological project, which is a bit mm. of a mouthful. Um, but this idea, and you already alluded to it with Russell, Russell would have been a late proponent of, of this idea that there yeah. is this, there is this achievable neutral rational ground, whether I think it's logical atomism or whatever Descartes or Kant's or Spinoza's or whoever's formulation yes. of it. Um, so, and, and I wanted to bring that into conversation with you. You have this idea that goes all the way back now to Plato and Aristotle mm-hmm. that, uh, or at least some of the scholarship that you, um, and I forget, I forget the source that you mentioned in this context, who talks about the rational ground as the goal of, of classical Greek philosophy. How would you contrast that rational ground with this never, never land of the uh, enlightenment project that, we can't actually get to because we actually all have worldviews. Hmm. Now, uh, before that, I, I would uh, I want to be sympathetic to the Enlightenment project because yeah. uh, what what they were facing was that uh, there were religious wars and people were killing each other over sure. different views. So they they said we we need a way to sort of reason things out, right? And yeah. uh, Descartes, for example, would have been would have been aware of the stuff that was happening, and and that's what they were aiming for. And uh, in some ways, uh, it was a very powerful project, and, and it got uh, it it became a bedrock, not the bedrock, but at least a bedrock of uh, of modern society. And in, in that sense, it has been a tremendous source of like great progress and intellectual sort of advancement and everything. So in, in that sense, I don't want to sort of demean the enlightenment in any way. Uh, but at the same time, when we think about it in the scale of like thinking about everything and, and right. what reality is and, and God and stuff like that. Uh, uh, and in that sense, Kant was, you could say, um, right in the way because he, he, like his voice was like he a caution like it, there's only so far a reason can get you at least in terms of like metaphysical questions but then i, I for me is his error was like then throwing out the entire metaphysical question as not a rational discussion but yeah. but saying having said that uh, the you could say the mistake of the enlightenment philosophy um of of rationality is that um, there is like this universal rationality, universal methodology, you could say, if you want to simplify it, universal method of getting answers about everything, about everything, right? Yeah. And um, and that just happens to be, for a lot of people, like um, pure science, um, as it exists now. And that's another big thing, because yeah. um, Aristotelian way of thinking would have been like, we have the science, but... Uh, you know, who, who knows what it's going to look like a thousand years from... I mean, now nowadays we, we would say the same thing, but we, we act as if, like, our current oh, science yeah. should answer everything, including God, and uh, and everyone should follow this one specific method, method and it will work for all times. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the assumption that we sort of brought into with the question of God when... As, um, as you also mentioned, uh, there are different worldviews, and what that means is that there's a, there are different ways of reasoning about things when you get com- uh, comprehensive enough. Because obviously, uh, say like a Hindu and a and a Christian and a uh, 
atheist uh, would still say like general theory of relativity is true. Like we, we can we can work on physics and we don't have to we don't have to have like alternate physics, right? But right. then if you pull that question into a higher level or a more comprehensive level, saying what does that mean for understanding what reality is as a whole? Like is it materialism, is it Platonism, uh, is it some sort of theism or uh, you, you know those questions. It it it's not it's not definitive enough. Right, mm-hmm. and for that different way of different way of, way of thinking and reasoning sort of exists there. Enlightenment project would have been thinking that no, no, we could go all the way up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the rational ground that I talk about, at least in, uh, in terms of Platonism and Aristotelianism, and uh, you'll be you'll be it would be a mistake to sort of um, put them into our question of like, there can, can there be different worldviews? Because I don't think they quite thought about it in that sense. I mean, they would have been aware of different sort of traditions and everything, but they, their sort of discussion was more like, um, is truth relative? That's, that's for example, what Socrates was asking. It's like, no, that, that can't be it. And that's true. But at the same time, can there be different ways of reasoning about things? Perhaps. Uh, I don't know whether that was a, that was such a huge question for them as it is for us today, where we actually do have like people from many many different cultures and worldviews competing. So, <clears throat> what rational ground meant then, and how I'm sort of using it in the book is that, um, hmm, how should I put it? This has to do with the question of God as well. So it has to do with how you envision what an intellectual inquiry is, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. For example, McIntyre, Alistair McIntyre, I think I mentioned him earlier in this episode. Yeah. Uh, uh, by talking the way, about McIntyre's I, concept of telos frequently in that section, I believe. Yes, and he's getting it from Aristotle and Plato, right? Yeah. So what he's pointing out is that, sure, um, like we don't, we don't follow Aristotle's physics anymore, um, but um, he, the, the way that he – yeah, but – and and we think we think like most of his you know philosophy is like history like respectable historical philosophy a philosopher in history but nothing more than that but um, Alistair Alistair McIntyre's point is well no no the way that we sort of envision intellectual inquiry hasn't really hasn't really changed um, at least from that time why because well here's how here's how he would have envisioned how science works right knowledge works and it's something like um, so. When we learn about stuff, like we do it by, um, I'm trying to put it into English language here, sort of like an empirical inquiry. Uh, so you like look into stuff, you inquire about it, you make observation, and you also have what's called dialectics, that which is like you argue about it, you make rational argumentation for and against it, so you can figure out like what's a logical way of thinking about these things, and all of that goes into science, and then and so you gain more and more knowledge about stuff in a particular given field right but then what you're actually aiming for is this ideal notion of um a finished like completed field of inquiry right so what would that look like and obviously um, we don't have any finished field of inquiry but we are at least aiming for it because otherwise what are you doing right if you don't have a goal of some activity then then you're not you're not doing anything that's intelligible so of the implicit goal of any sort of intellectual inquiry, including science, is that you're trying to get to a point where you have like these set of like fundamental principles of that field. And from that, uh, so you can say in, in physics, like ultimate laws of physics. 
So if you know that, if you actually reach that, then from those principles and laws, you can deduct, deductively figure out everything that happens in like, that's observable in that field from those principles. So again, in, the, um, in terms of physics, you know, if you know the ultimate laws of physics and every, everything about the, those laws, then you can figure out everything that, um, that physics cover. Like why, for example, in cosmology, for example, why there's Big Bang and how things unfold and all of that deductively from the, from the laws alone. Now you arrive at that knowledge from say empirical inquiry and logical argumentation, but when you finish it, that's where you want to end up. Now, what Aquinas was actually arguing about is that you, you know that thing that you're aiming for uh, um, in, in the very end, telos, the ultimate laws of physics and all of that, uh, you have to assume that they, they exist, otherwise your inquiry doesn't make sense, right? Uh, you have to assume that laws of, laws of physics exist for physics to make sense. You have to assume that uh, there are principles that underlie biology, for example, for, bi um, for studying biology. Um, those ends... Um, if you go all the way to like, um, so that it includes every one of those things into a single system, because that's what you're aiming for. Uh, because we think, even now we think biology can't be inconsistent with say chemistry and chemistry right. can't be inconsistent with physics. Everything needs to connect. So if when everything connects and that's the rational ground that what I mean, uh, so in that sense, the rational ground of you doing any sort of intellectual inquiry, like what are your implicit assumptions that, make you think that what you're doing as a scientist actually matter, right? right? And it will actually get somewhere. In that sense, it's the rational ground. And that's mm -hmm. what Plato and Aristotle was trying to work on. It's like, why are we thinking about the, like, why would rational thinking matter? Well, because we think, we think reality is rational in that sense. So that thing that you're aiming for, Aquinas was saying, that's what we call God. Mm -hmm. Which is why I don't need to like make a separate argumentation because you already believe it, right? right? So, and right. I'm just saying that's God. So yeah. now, now then we need to argue about other things like, okay, is is God like simple in in the sense that is God made up of different parts? Like, no, uh, is God good? Yes, that sort of argumentation which yeah. happens in the later chapters. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. that's and what it means. Just to round off the book and hopefully transition to some, to sort of transcend the book a little bit. I mean, in your final chapter, which I haven't quite finished yet, but you, um, in fact, the last two pages that I've read, you you bring up um, Hawking's book on, gosh, which one is a brief history of time, I believe, and and discussion yep. of ultimate laws as a potential, like you know, so so the question, like you know, mo no matter what your you know physics. You know, your current modern physics conception of the universe is whether you believe in a multiverse or uh, what, whatever other hypothesis you um, subscribe to. Um, there's always the question of, and why does it there, and what are the laws that it obeys? And for that matter, why should that be the state of the affairs that things obey these laws? Oh, that, that's all that we mean by God, or that is in some sense what we mean by God. That's, that's, that's related. That's our hopefully common point of departure. Is that at least a reasonable approximation of where you're you're starting to head in that chapter? So um, you want to be specific because you want you can't just say like uh, that's what we mean by God. Period. Right. But right. I use Hawking specifically because he is an atheist. He's like uh, yeah. he's, he's confessed atheist, uh, and he he does that like very very explicitly in the book Grand Design. But in yeah. that very book, Grand Design, he has this interesting statement where he says, um, 
yeah, you can think of God as like the embodiment of ultimate laws of nature. And like, ah, right, see, because that's that's actually how it works. Um, embodiment is is a is an unfortunate choice of words. That's a, that's a potentially uh, problematic term, yeah. Yes, um, but um, that it came from Stephen Hawking is is significant because what I'm pointing out is that well, if I use if I follow sort of the Aquinas-like argument and and make a crossroad there, then the crossroad and you have to be uh, very specific with the crossroad because crossroad between exactly what right mm-hmm. crossroad between Christian Christianity understood in a very very general way obviously and and scientific naturalism but not just scientific naturalism scientific naturalism in the context of uh cosmology mm-hmm. right um so in the context of cosmology and 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 physics uh, then what um hawkins would have uh, stephen hawkins would have uh, called like the ultimate laws of nature and he literally like he literally says like explicitly writes that um you don't need god because like laws like gravity, like these laws of nature, uh, mm-hmm. makes universe come, like the uh, universe gets generated. And because he's actually thinking in terms of, um, because if you live in a different worldview and you have a, a pretty much an alien worldview sort of impinging upon your understanding and they, they tell you stuff, then often what happens is that the central ideas of the other worldview becomes like this alien entity that's just... Mm-hmm out there, right? So right. you have your world, which you can explain more or less, right? Um, at least in a workable way. And it's like, I, it, it works. I mean, there are a whole bunch of questions that I can't answer, but you know, it works in terms that I think laws of nature, ultimate laws of physics tells tells me how universe can be generated, maybe even a multiverse. And you're telling me I need this, like, a, like this alien entity on top of it. Like, why should I? Um, mm-hmm. and, and but because he's hawking, I think uh, he goes a bit further, saying maybe you mean by like this God, like ultimate laws of nature. And if that's the case, then well, okay, like okay, okay with that. And it's like okay, that's a that's an interesting point because that's mm-hmm. exactly what I would predict, um, at least at least with my book. But then he says, ah, but with God, you need more. You need miracles, which is again right. But then he says. Uh, but uh, miracles would mean that uh, laws of nature would need to be like violated, and I don't see I don't see that happening with laws of physics, which is where I sort of go against the saying. Um, I don't I don't think that's quite quite precisely the right understanding of what miracles no. are. No. Right. Um, and you need you need to go far beyond that to figure out what what that actually means in Christianity. But in the context in the context of physics and. I have diff- when I when I speak with people who's sort of out to get Christianity, and mm-hmm. um, I had a recent conversation with uh, one person uh, yes. regarding that, they get impatient because they like, "What do you mean in context of like like do you believe in God or not?" I'm like, "No, because you can't you can't just fast forward these questions because yeah. the, it's a large question." So right. in the context of physics, where you're thinking about the real thinking about reality in terms of laws of nature that underlies and you think about it in that sense because that's the rational ground in the sense that this this is what makes you as a like your all your works as a scientist make sense um and that sort of rationality of reality is what we call god but only in that specific context for the rest we need to we need to carry that dialogue and, and journey forward that we uh, one of the things that one of the big things that we need to do is that we need to then sort of 
revisit and, and trace out the entire narrative journey of Christianity from that crossroad because now you now we can place ourselves right so right. We, you don't make you don't you don't make like silly misunderstanding of like you don't understand what the term god means now we sort of do so from that we trace out the entire journey and it is from the entire journey that you have you get a better idea or a better sense of what it means to say that you believe in god right so you need the entire journey this is only the starting point which is why that book uh, I said is is pretty much just a foundational matter. It's it sets the frame to start the journey, mm-hmm. right? So that's what I mean. So what I wanted to head off in that final chapter, and I I do that sort of in the beginning of, of my podcast series as well, is that we have this notion, especially in in the more secularized conversation, that when we talk about God, we we have like this alien. As I mentioned with uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, that talked uh-huh. about Stephen, yeah. we are like this alien entity, and it's it is an entity. It's a very powerful entity. It's apparently like super intelligent and all knowing, whatever uh-huh. that means, and it yeah. can do stuff like a Superman. And but he's but he's invisible and and untouchable. But he's there. Like you should just believe that he's there. And that's the sort of like notion that people have of God. So then the question is, can you prove that this invisible, super powerful, and super knowing entity? Is there somewhere among everything in the world? And that doesn't make sense for Christianity. Like if you if you are in a different worldview and try, you, you try to understand Christianity or any theistic worldviews for that matter, that's the mistake that you get. And what I was trying to do is say, okay, forget about your Superman. Right. He doesn't exist. Like, right. You don't think yeah. he exists. We don't think he exists. No, no there is no, no bearded white guy in a chair up on a cloud somewhere even though that's the caricature version of God that's so often being argued against. Yeah. And, and even if you make it very, very, you know, philosophically more respectable in, in, in coming up with a better conceptual like description, it's, he, he still doesn't exist because that's not what we mean. Yeah. I think um, there's a theologian named David Bentley Hart. He uh-huh. used an example that I also use in my podcast and I, and I didn't know that he used it. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's the same thing. He says, uh, what did he say? I used Hamlet, but he used uh, Anna Karenina Anna Karina, uh, okay. for Tolstoy. Anna Karenina? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Anna Karenina, yeah, that's the one. Um, and he said, um, a lot of the, a lot of these uh, like debates about like existence of God in, in either in scientific or even any sort of uh, like does God exist setting, it's, it's almost like uh, people in Anna Karenina arguing about the author saying, like, is there a particular page where the author appears and uh, like maybe it's in the beginning of the chapter, uh, but we don't see the author at the at, at page one and we don't see any like specific design of like writings yeah. and stuff yeah. that shows it like, and he says, I don't see um, Tolstoy yeah. book anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't see Tolstoy anywhere. Yeah. Um, and, I don't see Shakespeare and, in here anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I use that for Hamlet, but um, well, he's, he's more combative. So the way that he put it was that, then, then, like people, these people contemptuously dismiss anyone that says, "Well, no, the author shouldn't exist anywhere in the book," um, and and they don't listen to him. Whereas, I think the way that I put it is that, well, if you're trying to place God in that sense, and you have um, think about it in terms of author, same 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 idea. In Hamlet, where is the author? Like where's Shakespeare? Like in one sense, nowhere. You're not going to find him anywhere. Like you're not going to find signs, quote unquote, signs of him anywhere. Yeah. But in another yeah, sense, at the same time. Yeah, it is everything, like yeah. all of all of the story. And in that sense, uh, when you talk about God, 
you don't think about it in terms like this entity somewhere that's super powerful. It's more helpful at this point, at least, to think about God as like all of reality. So in that sense, when you're at a crossroad, you look at the entire horizon of everything. It's like, yeah, that, all that, that that's God. That's what we mean, mean by God. Don't try to find some crazy thing that's out there. Like that's, that's right. what we mean, right? right? Uh, but at the same time, in terms of science, the closest concept that you have that parallels the concept of God in context of science would be something like the ultimate laws of nature. And in that sense, Stephen Hawking had it right. Yeah. Then yeah. can we get something beyond that? It's like, well, then let's go over the story of how we like related with this all of reality and, and what happened when we related to it and, and you know, pray to it or heard voices, which uh, if you just think of it in terms like super, uh, invisible Superman, then you could still ask, maybe like you're just being crazy. It's like, no, no, no. If, if you're talking about reality as a whole, then it's mm-hmm. meaningful to say that sometimes we have these experiences that sort of reality is structured in a yes. way that we have these experiences that seem to guide us. So the question is not like, hey, is this only in our heads? Because again, if you're in a book, right, or if this is a story, um, people have thoughts in those, like protagonists thought this in that story. It's like, is that from the author? In a sense, yes. So if you have thoughts in your own head, that's still the author. It's also you, but it's also the author. Um, so the only condition that you would be looking for would be if you follow this voice, like this thought, is it true? Like how does the world unfold? Yeah. What happens, right? What are the fruits that that form, right? And what are some of the things that that really, 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 really messes us, uh, messes us up when when we don't hear the voice or when we follow the voice wrongly or that, which is, by the way, uh, I think I covered in the podcast series, um, um, why eating from a, eating a fruit from a tree uh, made humanity fall. Because that's an odd story, right? Because right. you eat a fruit and, and you're cut off from God. It's like, right. um, if you follow it that way, no, but, but um, if I were to sort of shorten that story, you, you, they ate the fruit after they distrusted God because the serpent's like, yeah, you can't trust God. It's like, yeah. he's lying to you. He's your enemy. He's trying to like bring you down. And then they eat the fruit of what's called the knowledge of good and evil, which for the Hebrew, it just meant knowledge of good things and bad things that can happen to you, like everything in life. And bad things can happen to you. But what if you get that, get that knowledge because you believe that this reality that unfolds things, namely God, is your enemy? Because then you're suspicious of everything that happens to you, and then you become afraid of everything that happens to you yeah. because he can be hostile. So what do you do? You hide. You try to protect yourself. That's yeah. what clothes mean because they, they, they become afraid. And when they hear God, they, they hide. And when they, and then they start like attacking each other because, hey, if reality is against me and I'm vulnerable, then I need to... I need to get ahead in life, right? And that means if, if I can beat my wife over the head while she's giving birth so that uh, so that she has to depend on me for the rest of her life and I get to rule over her, I will do that. Right. And that's the story of Genesis. So it, so when you retell the story when at the crossroad, it should make more sense. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, and if the story remains alien, then, yeah. then you're... Well, you're alienated from the story and you're alienated from the journey. Yeah. And that's what my podcast is trying to recalibrate so that the stories once again become 
real and and we can actually walk the story figuring out like understanding what's going on and what's happening yeah which is yeah with a, a badly badly needed project i mean that's i think bill you say frequently how often we need you know bridge builders communicators people who can help you know cross these you know as opposed to our you know not that human beings haven't always had a tendency to balkanize and split off into their own worldviews and only talk to people who agree with them. But boy, yeah. it's so easy to find, you know, and then they splinter and they've, they've, they've gone down such a, a tremendously long path of splintering and, and becoming more and more alienated from each other. Yeah. And, uh, it helps me if I hope I'm right on this, but uh, that, that sense of uh, crossroads is, um, in, in one sense, it's uh, it's a vision of um, uh, a meeting place, uh, a, a kind of static meeting place where worldviews and people can kind of just meet there. And in that moment of time, uh, they either find agreement or disagreement or clash or whatever. But I think what you're saying so well is that um, – the crossroads is a place like our typical experience of a traffic intersection where everybody's continuing on in a journey. Uh, and uh, it's, it's just as important to meet in that moment of time, but it's also very important to note that everybody's continuing on uh, a journey in their own direction and to better un- to, the effort is to, better understand not just where you where you where you uh, think alike in that moment but where you agree on the 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 origin point the principles that started that journey or on his way and the the purpose and the 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 destination of each journey is, is and i think that's what i heard happening in your podcast that people on that journey are trying to get into uh, contact with conversation with God hmm. uh, is yeah. that is is that a, and and so we can all kind of empathize with that. Yeah, in that sense, it's it's like an invitation, right? Yes. Uh, a lot of the times, it's a lot of the times when people with different worldviews come together. Uh, it's not a crossroad. It's it's um it's a no man's land with trenches. Wow, that's usually how it happens. Right? No man's land with trenches. Yeah. Whereas what I'm envisioning, and and the Enlightenment wanted to get across the no man's land with trenches by saying, here's the here's the here's the universal sort of capital city of everything that we are going to set up where all of you needs to be there. Where, right. Where my argument is that there is no such like we tried to build a city, there is no such city. Yes. It doesn't work. No one no one gathers at one place. Yeah. There can be different crossroads depending on who meets, right? right? But we need but to get to a crossroad, we actually need to journey there. We need to get to wow. the other where the other person is, meet them at the crossroad. Right. And across the trenches right. and say, okay, now we can, at least at this point, we can look at the same horizon and we can sort of point to and say, this is what we mean by God, but you don't think it's God. That's fine because you don't, you haven't had the same journey, but at least you know what we are pointing to. Yes. Right? At least you know what we are pointing to. So here's an invitation for, for you to join you together with me. And yeah. when you join you together with me, uh, maybe I'll learn something from you because right. I think one of the things that, um, the more non-theistic scientific position sort of gave to Christianity, at least in the recent centuries, is that um, we sometimes, how should I put it? Uh, 
we take things too personally with God. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, it's not sunny. Oh, it's rainy today. When I was going to go on a picnic, God hates me. It's like, no, no, no. A lot of the things that happen in the world that, God, and, and it's like, oh, well, uh, well, if that's not, uh, maybe that's not God. Maybe God doesn't hate me. So it's, the rain's not from God. No, no. The rain is also like, ultimately speaking from God in the sense that it follows the laws of physics and presumably. So it's in that sense, God, but it's not about you. It's like God's not personally out to rain on your parade. Right. Uh, a lot of things that happen in the cosmos, which um, in the way that I put it in, in my podcast is it's something that God is speaking. It's we, we, we conceive of reality some, as something like a speech, uh, metaphorically, perhaps more, uh, even more, more than that. But so some, it's something that God speaks, but a lot of that speech is, in a sense, impersonal or perhaps impartial, right? That's impartial, another way to yeah. Right? Um, and it's something that um, I think more impersonal, you could say, study of, um, study of nature has given us insight to. So when we invite people on a journey from this cross, when we can go, they can point stuff out and say, oh, we've, maybe we've made a mistake or maybe we didn't quite uh, understand things in the way that we could have, at least in the full, well, more fuller sense, um, about God or about life. And, and we can learn. And hopefully you can see what we've gone through and, and how life seems to unfold and, and what happens, for example, if you follow Christ, right? Um, and, and, and what he seems to answer on the cross, because that's a crazy story, right? Like here's a representative of everything that is true and good. And, and we like torture him and nail him on the cross. And, but that brings salvation. That's a crazy story. But, but then there's a context and, and okay, what happens if you follow that story along? And then, and, and what that means, um, when you see the empty tomb, for example, or when you believe the empty tomb, whichever. Um, so when you go through the story by being invited on a journey from that cross, crossroad so that they know where they are and where they where they come from, right? From their own belief system. And then perhaps the dialogue and the conversation that can happen becomes something meaningful instead of, I don't know, grenades that's thrown over trenches. Yeah. Which often is the case when you have worldviews that's that's going against each other. Fascinating. And it actually like leads somewhere, right? Right, right. That's the real purpose for having a crossroads so that you can mm -hmm. uh, start journeying together and understand each other through the uh, through the pursuit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. It's a it's a hopeful vision. It really is. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, people, uh, it, it, the more you're open minded, uh, both mm -hmm. in terms of uh, individual people and the context of their journeys, uh, and you don't take it personally. I love that idea. Uh, don't take it personally. Uh, but uh, the more you the more you uh, see it in its big picture from the crossroads. Uh, you can um, you can really uh, find uh, some unity there, a unification of of the of the journeys. Uh, I, I hope I I hope I'm wording that in roughly accurate uh, terms. <laughs> it is a hopeful sort of vision. Uh, sometimes uh, I do feel a bit more cynical than um, so. It uh, it goes up and up and down, but it is supposed to be a, a hopeful vision of. Um, how people can communicate with each other. Um, less hopeful uh, in the la uh, last several years with uh, what's been happening in the world and politics and everything, but, Amen, yeah. but still, yeah, still. 
Yeah. Yeah. It was a, um, just go back to the book for a second. It was, it was kind of uh, sobering to read your assessment of, um, I mean, of course you're, you're um, drawing on a lot of people's scholarship in this assessment that Aquinas really in his era kind of failed at his project that he really, <laughs> he, he, was. he did not, he did not, his, his vision did not get understood and therefore did not get accepted and promulgated in the late middle ages. Uh, yeah, at the, at the very least in the way that he uh, he was trying. So, yeah. I mean, one thing, uh, a lot of people thought he was heretic, like he was True. a heretic. Yeah, yeah. That, that was one thing. But even after people thought, no, I guess he wasn't a heretic and maybe we should learn from him. But um, I think what I wrote in the book was that um, when they decided to learn from him, they didn't, they, they couldn't quite figure out that he was trying to put two massively different sort of intellectual yeah. systems or worldview together they, they just thought well he just made some good arguments so we're just going to take pieces of pieces of here right. and and quote him here and then and right. quote him there and it's like if you do that you don't actually understand what he's doing but right. they did that anyway and yeah. and that sort of continued apparently uh until yeah, yeah. 20th century so yeah. yeah and i mean and of course it you know it created the the late scholastic you know intellectual environment that the you know descartes and the enlightenment rebelled against and, mm-hmm. yeah so yeah. Yeah, that's the challenge yeah yeah yeah, yeah I have to some, perhaps and, and the thing and of course it's also hopeful at the same time that you know perhaps now almost 800 years later maybe in some ways we're finally starting to understand uh, Aquinas in the terms that he hoped to be understood or at least to some degree um, mm-hmm. at, at, at any rate his his ideas are seedy seeds for us they're not seedy they're seeds <laughs> that we you know that are being you know that were planted and after a very very long time perhaps are bearing fruit that he could never have even anticipated or at least there's still that potential there's still that potential yeah so which i mean the book uh my book is actually trying to say or my art the the theme of my book is that um a lot of people sort of repeat uh, the content of Aquinas's uh, position, but what we need to learn is um, the the goal, the yeah. what what he accomplished, rather than because the content gets like it's it gets outdated. Uh, you don't follow Aristotelian physics anymore, mm-hmm. but uh, what he was trying to accomplish by integrating those things together—that's what we need to do. That's what we need to redo for our generation, um, and that's going to be a very large project. Uh, so when I finished the book and I was publishing it, um, one of one of my peer so it goes through a peer review process, obviously, yeah. and one of the peer reviewer, um, his his re- because I got rec- obviously um, I got recommendations, which is why I got published. Uh, he said um, this book is sort of like um, how did he put it? He he he, he caught it right on in that sense. Uh, he said. Um, the author is some uh, author is someone someone like Moses I'm like ooh Moses like uh, so that that was a you know that that was a compliment but he's he actually wanted to say more than that it's like he's like Moses in the sense that he sort of brought us right to the edge of the promised land right. but he didn't lead us across it he just showed us the promised land but we are not there yet yeah. and and his sort of implicit comment was like so when are we getting in right. and my answer was. I am working on it, right? But my real answer was, well, I'm going to write this book. People are going to read it. Like People who are a lot smarter than I am are going to read it, and, and they're going to come up with the project. So I finished it, waited for a few years. 
no one starts a project. So, so I'm like, okay, so if no one starts a project, then I guess I will have to at least at a more um, uh, general audience level, which is why I began the podcast series. Yeah. Uh, podcast series, What Do You Mean God Speaks, is pretty much what that project is supposed to be, right? Um, and that podcast series in turn is like a rough draft of the book that I, um, I'm now writing, in which now I have the first draft, which now I'm going to work on heavily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hopefully try to get it published. So, so that's where that's where the entire project is right now. But uh, it's that's the goal. It's like here's here's bringing together people, and here's this is what we mean by God for you people who don't believe in God, but who sort of do believe in say science and whatnot. It's like here's what we mean by God, and here's here's what our journey has been. Here's what Genesis means, if that's the case, and yeah. here's why those crazy stories about fruits are actually supposed to make sense, and. Yeah. Here's why blood's supposed to make sense, and and why God is God isn't so like crazy evil for bringing about the flood. It's actually describing aspects of reality that you know happens. That's what Genesis really is. It's yeah. it's describing the things that you already know is true, yeah. uh, but in a grand sense, and that's what flood means, and that's what um, Babel means, and creation obviously. And here's what the journey of Abraham means and, and what that means for people who's actually trying to converse with all of reality as, as if reality is a person and what, the, what, what happened then and, and what are some of the problems that you're going to encounter when you try to do so. Like when God asks you to sacrifice your son because right. that's a big deal. But, but at the same time, if you understand the entire story in that context from, from where we are from the crossroads, then you will understand that You've actually heard the same same call. Like this, this is something that you're going to face because because if you're afraid that reality is going to take stuff away from you that that you love, uh, because we always are afraid. And the story of Adam and Eve basically is that there was a point where we became afraid of, of it for a reason. Then when you have Isaac, you're going to be afraid, and you're going to be afraid that God's going to kill your son. So what's the answer to that? Well, you need to bring bring him, present him before God as an offering. Because that's the only way to conquer your fear. And if you do that, then you're going to get your son back. And but you're also uh, you you will also be freed from being frozen in fear, which is my latest episode. So that's that's the journey of the story that I'm trying to sort of unfold, hopefully to the very end of the the Christian story. That's gonna take a while. But it's yes. a good argument for following your podcast and for awaiting your next book. Absolutely. Oh, yes, please do. I, I am. My podcast is lonely, lonely of lonely for listeners. Yeah. Well, not. I mean, obviously, I have some, but you know, I could always use more. Right. It's, it's <laughs> the states, and especially from outside Canada. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I always wonder the 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 devil is in the algorithms, as they say, um, or at least as I say. So you know how they're how people are or are not being directed to your podcast. We hope to at least direct a few that direction because. Uh, it would it would be a good thing a good thing to follow along and uh, be involved in this project. So, well, that uh, that was wonderful, and uh, we've we've uh, it's almost an hour and ten minutes at this point. So, uh, but it's been a nice, beautiful, needy conversation that we're really grateful to have had the chance to have. So, uh, with that, maybe uh, we we uh, would always be open to another conversation in the future. I yeah, let's I do that, that, please. Yeah. I think that would be, be great. Be a wonderful thing. So. Any any final words, Bill? Paul? No, just uh, thank you for uh, for the uh, ongoing journey that uh, that you've brought us uh, along with uh, of the book, and then to more to follow. 
Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Yes, very grateful, and we hope to do this again in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhart. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host, Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Giesting. Until next time.